Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 77. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Souza Ma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Good day to you, Dr. Woolman. Good day to you, Christina. You know, I, I always immediately ask you, as a reflex, probably, how are you? But the reality is, we've been talking for about a half hour, so I really know how you are. <laughs> but that's also an illusion, you know that. I, I understand that. So I'm not going to ask you how you are anymore. I'm going to ask you if you're ready to bounce. Oh, I'm always ready to bounce, see? <laughs> there you go. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide along with Christina today as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy looking towards optimal health. And you know, Christina, we've been, uh, for many of our shows, we spend most of our time looking at the physical body. We talk to doctors that treat the physical body Mm -hmm. and therapists that treat the physical body and do things. But we always also speak of body, mind, and spirit. And I think it's really important in terms of health and medicine and magical medicine to explore the mental aspects of our health. And I'm planning on having a series of of guests come on over the next few months to speak about uh, issues with the mind and relating to the mind. And we're going to start today with a very special guest, Meng Ling Si Sui. And uh, she is a psychotherapist and actually a psychodynamic psychotherapist. And we're going to learn what that means. And we're going to learn a number of things about uh, our mental uh, abilities today. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Mung. How are you, Mung? Hey, I'm great, Glenn. Good to see you. Hey, Christina. Hi, Mung. How are you? Very well. Good. You see, I get to ask her how she is, Glenn. Okay. Would you do me a favor? Just exactly. Well, you can ask that. Would you? Would you ask it in Cantonese, just so I can uh, hear a little Cantonese for all of our Cantonese listeners? Welcome. Welcome. Oh, Uh, we would just say say ni homa. Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's it. Don't ask any more. Okay. <laughs> and now I'll Mandarin, right? <laughs> um, as the medical guide, I usually tell our uh, viewers the path that I hope we're going to at least establish today for a few moments. And I want to first find out a little about it, a little bit about you and how you became a psychodynamic psychotherapist. Then I want to get into a little bit of your training. We want to develop some definitions and of, of things that we're going to be speaking about and then get into the, the, the meat of the process. How does that sound to you? Sure. Sounds good to me. Excellent. So in the beginning, in the genesis of Meng Ling, uh, what got you into the interest of the mind and therapy for the mind? Boy, this is a this is a really good question. I think that um, becoming a therapist was never was something that only entered in my mind, you know, in my thirties, my early thirties, maybe my late twenties. But now, when I look back upon Oh, my educational interests and what fascinated me when I was in school, even when I was a child, I recognized that um, I was always a bit, I always wanted to know what people, what was going on in people, you know, sort of the way 
they might have behaved in ways that uh, were really puzzling, were against their best interest, in ways to a child's eyes was really quite, you know, really quite baffling. So I realized that I was really interested in that. And I was also academically interested in literature, which I think was very much an exploration of people's internal worlds. Mm-hmm. And, and that, in my early 20s, sort of this interest in um, internal processes, perhaps some puzzlement over what I was doing with my own life that sort of puzzled me, I ventured on my th- own therapy. And it was something that I just started and I thought, well, I'll do this for a little while, you know, see, see where it takes me. And I just became so fascinated with it. So incredibly fascinated by the world that opened up for me um, that I decided in my early t- 30s that I wanted to embark on this, which is really as young as you would want someone to be before they actually embark on being a therapist. There's a bit of living that you need to do first before you start the work. You know, you've, you've already brought up a number of questions for me. When, uh, when you talk about you did your own analysis, I, I'm picturing you sitting in an office and you ask a question and then you run over to the couch and you lie on the couch and you answer the question <laughs> then you run back and, and analyze it or ask the next question. Is that what you meant? Uh, what a self-analysis is? Yeah, was it, is, is that what you did, self-analysis, or did you go to someone for analysis? No, I, I went to somebody. Oh, okay. I, did I say self? Yeah, it's it's. Um, I guess that the reason that that term comes up is that that's what a therapist uh, who's trained psychodynamically or psychoanalytically does. It, that's the very building block of the work we do. So it's experiential and um, academic. It's the two mixed together. So uh, a crucial part of it is one's own therapeutic, one's own therapeutic journey, one's own analysis. And of course, this is done with somebody else okay. because that's, that was really important because that's a very important part of the therapy is the relationship between two people. You know, that can't be overlooked, that there's a very powerful relationship to the two people. And it's the exploration of that relationship very often um, that gives us a lot of insight into our processes. You also brought up the concept of being very interested in people doing things that were not good for them. Their yeah. behavior patterns yeah. were uh-huh. about doing things that, even as a child, you recognized that they were not good. Yeah. And th- that seems to be a whole part of what this is all about, people making decisions that are not really good for them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say that what distinguishes, perhaps we were getting into the question of what, you know, people always come and they say, well, what, what's the difference? You know, what's, what's psychology and what's psychiatry and what's, and even um, under the field of therapy, therapy is a huge umbrella and we're one segment of it. We're psychodynamic, which means that we work with the unconscious. And um, so the way I would describe it is, you know, maybe we use the iceberg metaphor and the very top part of the iceberg is visible, but the rest is submerged. So in our consciousness, we might seek something. We might seek to have healthy relationships. We, we might, um, I don't know, seek all those things that, that 
people traditionally want. But then somehow we find mates that aren't the right mates for us. Um, we find that we react to people in ways we don't understand. So, so what our work strives to do is understand what the unconscious beliefs, what the unconscious assumptions, what lies in the unconscious that, that sort of behaves like an undertow. We're aiming to go this way and something is pulling us back this direction. So that's, that's what psychodynamic work hopes to achieve is to make more of the unconscious conscious to us so that we, in essence, have more of ourselves to live out of, more awareness of ourselves to live out of. And you mentioned uh, psychiatrists and psychologists. Can you briefly say how, how and where they're different than your methods? I think, at least I can say for um, up here in Canada, um, psychiatrists by and large work in pharmacology. So, you know, they, pharmacology is such a specialized field now. So certainly they could help people with anxiety meds, uh, depression, that, that sort of thing. By and large, they don't do talk therapy. Um, psychologists um, are academically university trained. They have their PhDs in psychology. They work in, um, by and large, they work in a more cognitive field, right? So... Um, it, it's better. For, it's easier for me to talk about what distinguishes psychodynamic, perhaps, which is so, that. No, please. Go, go ahead. That's what. Oh, we okay. Yeah, and and that what we are trained in in Ontario here in Canada, we're trained in freestanding institutions where we are required to do. For instance, the training program I'm in requires us to do at least 100 hours of our own therapy requires us to do ongoing therapy while we're in the program, requires us to be in group therapy um, while we're in the program at the same time as us having to pursue a about an eight-year, six, six to eight-year academic program, part-time academic program in mm-hmm. the interim. And the reason that that's crucial is, um, well, we have to remember, if we go back to the very origins of psychoanalysis, this was about you know, essentially around Freud, right? And for Freud, the training was about self-analysis. And he actually did do this with himself. And he did something, and I will have um, argued with Freud and grown Freud's ideas. And he's been probably one of the most misunderstood figures <laughs> of the last hundred odd years. But he thought it was crucial that we understand that we're willing as practitioners to go into our, our, our unconscious and explore what's in there so that we, if this is something we have to know firsthand. We, I, I liken it to if I read 300 books on tennis and then I've never held a racket and I say, well, you go out there and you, play, you, you can teach people how to play tennis. Well, no, you can't. You have to have actually have experienced it. The other level of... Um, a therapist doing self-analysis that's very important is that we start to understand where our own vulnerabilities and our own biases are. And we have many of those and many of those are unconscious. So it's not to say that um, been through a long therapy doesn't have flaws, but at least we know where we might need to be careful. You know, we may need to know where we might be getting triggered so that we're not 
so to speak, contaminating them with our own sort of germs and our own dirty hands in the hope of affecting some cure or some growth, right? Let's, um, let's have a couple of definitions, if we could, just for a working analysis here. Uh, can you give us a definition of consciousness, subconsciousness, unconsciousness? And realizing, of course, we could have an episode on each of those, but just just a, a working model so that when we use the terms later on, maybe people will get that understanding. The iceberg was a great image for me, but is there something else that we can know? Gee, uh, I think maybe a more helpful way, maybe a way that I, I can talk about it is you know, if you, if you take, very often when people say something's in your unconscious, you, you might want to think, well, something terrible happened and you blocked it from your memory, right? Right. But I think there's so much that we have to know and so much information we've taken in that um, we operate, it on, operate on automatic knowledge. For instance, when you cross the street, Glenn, you don't think, oh, you know, what do I do? I look to the left and I look to the, you know, it, it's all automatic. It's all it's all something we do without actually thinking. And Freud had a term um, called the unthought known, which I think is really quite brilliant. It's that we, we know something in our guts, but we've never allowed it conscious. We've never articulated it. We've never said it to another human being. And once hmm. we put it into that sort of awareness, then we make it conscious, right? Hmm. So, so um, sort of, you know... An example like, I am my performance. You know, if I'm not doing well in the world, if I'm not that A-plus student or that super achieved, those things may be unconscious, but so known to the person from a time they're very, very young. Mm -hmm. you know? And then something like that becomes, um, it, it, it comes to light. And then we can actually explore, is that true? I wonder why I think that. I wonder what it's done to me to have thought that. You know, what has that not done to whom I, who I am? And I think that's, that's what's the thing about psychodynamic psychotherapy is it really strives to know who we are, who we are authentically. And through the exploration of the unconscious, and of course, a great way to talk about the unconscious is to talk about perhaps the analysis of dreams. That mm. might be a way that I can make it more clear. So, so we live in a world where we kind of think, oh, you know, I had a dream about, you know, cowboys. It must be because I watched the movie last night. And we, and, and we might say, well, that's the manifest, you know, meaning of the dreams. It's sort of like the container, like the vase that it is in, but it's not the content. The content is always dreamer, uh, is always deeper. So unfortunately, we've discarded dreams. Uh, culturally, and I always think, why? Why would we do something three times a night? You know, essentially three times a night, and it's not for any purpose. Like it, it must serve a purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And and so what I I what I believe the work um, that psychoanalysts have been working on for for well over a hundred years is that the unconscious speaks in dream form because our regular sensors are down. But it speaks in, it's the artist in us speaking. 
so the so it speaks in symbols it speaks in disguise you know you don't want something that's going to be jarring and wake you up in the middle of the night because the content's so disturbing so that's one of the ways that we try to access the unconscious because people say well the unconscious is really unconscious how do you get at it right and through the work of of doing dreams or analyzing dreams people come to you know, at first they kind of look at you like, oh, gee, I don't know about you. <laughs> I don't know about doing this work. I, you know, it's, and, and then as they do dream work more and more, they really come to marvel at how profound their dreams are mm-hmm. and how profound they are because they had these dreams. So there's a way that the dreaming self knows so much more than the waking self. It gives us instruction, and that's because it comes from the unconscious self in these sort of Pieces of art, right? These mm. pieces of symbolic art. Robbie Boznak uh, <laughs> did some episodes with us, uh, and he does a lot of work in, in dream therapy uh, at the Santa Barbara Healing Sanctuary. We also had Ann Diamond and Peter Wright on with us, and they went into the unconscious uh, through hypnosis. Do you use hypnosis? <laughs> Um, no, I don't use hypnosis per se. I, um, I do do a form of deep relaxation with people. Mm-hmm. So, um, which is a layer of, of perhaps you can call trance work, right? But, but the person actually does not, you know, go into that deepest layer of trance. But I don't know, I haven't done hypnosis. And one of the things that, um, that if I go back to Freud, he initially started doing a lot of hypnosis. And he found the problem with hypnosis was that he was going around the sensor. Mm. So do you know what I mean? Sort of like the sensor would be down and then he would go around the sensor and then get to material. But it was actually, we, we started, I believe we need to work with the sensor. Oh. You know, with the sensor and sort of say, okay, maybe, maybe... Maybe you can have these thoughts. Or maybe, you know. um, right. So I don't personally work in a lot of uh, hypnosis, but I do do dream work. I do do work in relaxation where people are in a form of a trance and um, through sort of free association, not, not in the old traditional way, but sort of letting people have their stream of consciousness. And the stream of consciousness may not be a rational stream of consciousness. Like we, we're trying to track the what we call the irrational mind. So it may go from you know something that happened in grade two to what happened with your boss yesterday that happened with your husband last week, and and there is a connection, and we're trying to trace that connection. Uh, I see. I want to get one more definition from you, and then we're going to really get into uh, some of the psychodynamic therapy. Uh, Your definition of mind, we talk about it all the time. Psyche has that in its its roots. Uh, What is your definition, or what is your working model for the mind? Um, Gee... I don't, I don't know that I've, I've thought that much about the question of mind in itself. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think much more in terms of, um, um, yeah, I don't really think, I haven't given a lot of thought to the question of um, mind. I wonder if there's something specific that you, you were thinking about, you had in mind about it. No, <laughs> I had in mind. Well, we use the word so much that 
I just, it was just of interest to me to see if there was something that you had as a definition. But let's move past that for a moment. Well, perhaps I would say that maybe if we think about mind, um, we can think of our mind as not being as cohesive as we had thought it was if we look at it. I think we might think of the self. We tend to think more of self, you know, um, of who is the self, who is I, or Freud's language, who is ego, who is I, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would say that in that case, we might find that people are more fragmented than they've known themselves to be. So one could say that one has uh, different states of mind, uh, different pieces of themselves. And I think that what we strive to do in the therapeutic process is hope for integration. So the whole person comes together. And so they're, they're working together wow. rather than when I say people do something puzzling and they want to do this, but then they move in this direction. So our hope is to integrate the self, perhaps integrate the mind so it's working together okay in a unified way i like that when when i think of medicine in the western model we usually think there's anatomy and there's physiology and then there's pathology for the anatomy and the physiology and we usually look for uh things that cause the pathology and then we try and either uh, eradicate them with antibiotics or something or uh, radiation, chemotherapy, surgery, etc. Do you use the same thing in your work in mental disorders? What is your model of illness in the world of mental uh, therapy? This is this is such a complex question because I I actually it's it's it, at this present time in Ontario, we are in the process of being regulated. Um, psychotherapists, we're, we're about to become regulated psychotherapists. It's been a long, drawn-out process. And it, under that regulation, we are being called mental health workers. We're being called health mental health practitioners, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a whole, um, there's a feeling among a lot of my colleagues that we're not crazy about this title because um, I tend to believe that, you know, we as human beings, we've gotten ourselves so complex, our brains have gotten so complex, we've in essence become so smart that that it's very difficult being human. It's a real challenge to be human. And there's so much growing that happens in the process of becoming human. Like, I certainly hope that um, who I am today is not the same person I will be in terms of I hope I keep growing. So I'm a different person in five years and there are layers of me that, that um, keep being um, uncovered and lived out of. So, so I, I don't tend to think in terms of mental illness, although there are certainly people who suffer terribly from imbalances that thank goodness we can, we can rep a lot through pharmacology and such. Mm-hmm. But by and large, the people I see, the people who do psychodynamic therapy, uh, are people who come in and we say they've got a presenting symptom, you know, they're having a challenge with their mother-in-law or their children. Or, and then through that, um, there's a line, Leonard Cohen's anthem, he says there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. And, and there's a way in which through that crisis, whether it be a marital crisis, a crisis in parenting, that, that, that the regular defense system, um, the way that we get around in the world, kind of cracks open a little bit. 
And then it allows us to go into our internal world and start living um, perhaps more authentically. So I tend to think it's always about growth that allows my clients um, to grow in a way that they may not have done if um, they had been able just to go on without that level of exploration, right? We, we look at reports now. There was a report that came out in 2011 that in the United States, one out of five people were taking uh, some kind of a mood behavior uh, medication or doing something because of anxiety, depression, panic attacks, um, all of these areas that have to do with the mind and mental disorders. Is, is this growing in the world or are we getting a handle on this? Um, is what growing in the world? Is the, is, uh, the, are the, the mental, that we're suffering? Well, all of the ang- people on with anxiety and with depression is this part of more modern times in modern uh, countries, or is it everywhere? Is it getting worse? What's what's the uh, what's the trajectory here in terms of mental disorders, or in in your model? Well, in my model, I, I would say that, um, you know, I always, I always encourage people to for perhaps take um, a medication when they need it. But I think there is too pervasive a disease model that's, mm-hmm. that's taken hold of us. So what, what we as therapists would tend to do is saying, is say, um, what is created in you? What is this anxiety about? Anxiety, I would say, anxiety is a way generally we, um, anxiety comes up when there's something that needs to be attended and we're too afraid to attend to it. Mm. It's, it I, I liken it to if you go see a massage therapist and you've really injured a part of your spine and they go to work around the the area of injury and everyone thinking you goes oh, like that tickle response comes in and says, don't go near this. Don't go near this. That's sort of what anxiety is. It's, it's wow. the road sign that says, don't go beyond this point because if you look behind here, something really scary is going to mm-hmm. come up and maybe it's not so scary at all. <laughs> maybe the anxiety, I would say the bulk of the time, the anxiety is worse than the fear that's around the corner from mm-hmm. it. So, and then on areas like anxiety, like depression, we would tend to, a little more subversive and say, what in your life is creating you this unhappiness in you? Why, why are you down? What, what is this? And I don't necessarily, I'm not satisfied with hearing from somebody, oh, you're depressed. I want to know what's it like when you're depressed? What are the thoughts you have when you're depressed? What does depression mean for you? And through each individual presenting themselves and telling me what their state of being is through what it's like for them when they wake up, what their dreams are like. Then we start to understand, is there something internal that's attacking them, you know, creating this depression? If there is their life, not the life that entirely that they should be um, living, is it a sign for them that something requires change, just like anxiety? Whereas if we're too quick to go, 
and say, take the medication without doing the exploration, then we, we live in the status quo. We kind of live with the way things are rather than saying something needs to change, whether whatever it may be. It may not even be that, you know, you need to leave your marriage or leave your job. It may be something needs a change within myself. And I found this to be much more the case. You know, mm-hmm. I found this to be much more the, that that's a symptom. So, so when people say to me, what do you work with the most? Do you work with depression? Do you work with OCD? Do you work with? And, and I say, well, no, each person is their own is their own, um, I don't talk about people for the symptoms they are. You know, I, for, for all of it, I see those as symptoms. So what I hope to do with each person is get to try to understand what are those symptoms trying to tell you? How do we, how do we listen to the symptoms so we can get to what it need in the world, what needs to happen for you? Mm-hmm. I don't even remember your question. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Glenn, before we go on, I I just want to let our audience know that they can actually ask a question at any time or make a comment by just scrolling down on the screen and typing it into the comment box. And be sure to click submit so I can share it with our guests and Dr. Woolman. Or you can prefer to, if you prefer to call directly into the conference line, you can do that as well. 323-476-3997. 323-476-3997. Your ID is 607-393-POUND. And uh, not to worry, that number will come back up on the screen as we go on. It's just that um, these topics are so juicy. <laughs> Thank you for that, Christina. I think I got so excited about changing our format of not asking you how you were. that I just <laughs> And then I got so interested in hearing what Mung was saying that it totally... Uh, it went away from my mind. Why is that, Mung? Why did I let that go? No, you don't have to. <laughs> I don't want to know these things. I what, could say, but then you'd have to kill me, Glenn. You know. <laughs> you know something that's very interesting for me is in in medicine now. Medicine was designed sort of early on, where we looked at signs and symptoms and then tried to find solutions from them. And over time. We also developed uh, preventive medicines. We started having vaccines and thing, other, other means of preventing things. I'm wondering, since we seem to have a lot of mental issues going on, are there things that can be done either in teaching children, uh, teaching parenting, um, in exercises that people can do for emotional issues to prevent uh, things, simple things from going on. Certainly, you know, if there's a true chemical disorder and a chemical imbalance, we may not be able to do that. But in, in cases where someone has anxiety, are there things that we can learn as a child or somewhere along the way that will help us to deal with that? That's a, that's a really big question. I, I think that... Um, I think that society has to shift in a, in a rather fundamental way in order to, um, to, to, enact, to bring by that sort of prevention. And I'm still of the mind, and perhaps I'm a, bit, a lot of an idealist, but I think that, um, well, perhaps not an idealist, maybe a pessimist, 
another level. That until we, we did you start just to, did you just start analyzing yourself? <laughs> yes, I, I did. I sure did. Um, I'm of the mind that very little fundamental change can happen in the world, um, even on a global scale, until we start to understand mm. ourselves internally. Um, so I think that there needs to be. I hope, and and there is a movement more and more toward it. You know, because I, I think that the. I think the idea of understanding ourselves internally is crucial. Mm-hmm. And we start with little kids. We, we don't, you know, we start with little kids as parents and we listen to them, really listen to them. We don't dismiss what they have to say. And we let them speak the truth. And, and I think that we tend, and this is, we tend to move away from the truth a great deal. Mm. We tend to move away from our own truths, and um, we encourage our children to move away from their truth. So I think that those things like depression and anxiety come up because we're not paying enough attention mm-hmm. to the um, internal child, or as I would say, the subjective child, you know, the little kid or the self who says, I feel this, you know, I feel this way about I think the oh, this is getting into very complicated uh, material. We have a sophisticated audience. <laughs> They've been trained for a while now, so go. 76, 76 episodes. Right. Yeah, I think um, the, a very important thing to to perhaps explore is the idea of defense, and and you know we are all born of imperfect parents because they're. Um, at least mine were. I'm sure yours were going. <laughs> what? And I'm imperfect? Wait a minute. That's, that we are, are and, and I can say this as a parent myself, you know, I, I make mistakes. And what happens in the process of being human and growing up human is that we develop defenses. And um, the defenses get in the way of us being truly able to relate to one another. So... Um, you know, between couples, I think they get into a lot of trouble with each other because they're not being honest. They're not relating to each other honestly. For instance, if if a partner is very hurt, they may, instead of being allowing themselves to go into the vulnerability of being saying, my God, I'm so hurt, they might get really angry. You know, mm-hmm. they get really angry and attacking and then their partner gets frightened. But rather than saying, whoa, I'm really scared right now, Enlarge a female-male dynamic. So the male, instead of saying, I'm really scared because you're so angry right now that I, I don't know what to do, let's say he starts to withdraw, right? Which, of course, what does this do to, let's say, hypothetically, his partner, the wife, and she gets angrier because she's more hurt because he's withdrawing. So this is where, where the defenses start engaging with each other rather than the genuine feelings. Because I, I would tend to believe that if if the hurt partner were able to say, my God, I'm so hurt by what's happening right now. It's going to elicit a different response in the partner. So th- this, is, this is to introduce you, the, the audience to an idea of a defense and a way that our defensive ways of relating to the world may not be helpful. And I think one such defense might be, um, like, I think shame is a very powerful affect. Shame mm. is a very and I think a lot happens in the world because people's shame gets triggered, but they can't sit in their shame, and perhaps they might fly into rage. 
a, a retaliatory kind of rage. And um, that th- that gives you an idea of what I mean by defense. So that becomes very destructive. Um, that was pretty powerful, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much so. Now, I, th- yeah. I love the idea of the defenses. We've always talked, I mean, everybody knows about defense mechanisms and everything, but I think you brought it into another space that people can grasp it a little bit more. Uh, I wanted to ask you, maybe we're going off uh, on a different tangent for a moment, but in the United States, our Supreme Court um, made a decision that corporations were people, so to speak, or they had persons. And I'm wondering, you're, you're from another culture, we're all from different cultures, do countries actually have personalities? And the reason I'm kind of asking this yeah. is, is, is when we're all trying to live in a global world now, and we can't have a child and a parent talking to each other, and we're trying to get countries to speak to each other, do countries <laughs> have personalities and their own disorders that have to be recognized and treated as we all work together and grow? I think absolutely you're right. This is, this is what I meant by I don't think we can, um, right. we can mm-hmm. a- achieve any really um, great global changes until we start to attend to our internal worlds. I think one of the things, um, yeah, there are huge cultural differences. I, I work with quite a lot of people from, from different cultures, I, I think that, um, okay, I think that in the, in the West, we have a much, we have a, a, a greater, oh boy, I guess, I don't know, I just, um, in the West, we do have a, a lot more understanding about a subjective self, for instance, than say, say somebody from the East, you know, they, they tend not to talk about what it means to be themselves. You know, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be me? You know, and an example is um, somebody I know came from, from China and, um, and this person asked a friend of mine, what do you, what do you do for work? And my friend told them and this other person said, Oh, is that a good job? And, and, and at the time we thought that's a, because in the West, we would say, do you like your job? You know, which is a subjective reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that we get into, I think, and I think that, that, the, I think that the, the global powers do have an understanding of this. I think that there are people who try to understand what the psychology of different cultures are. But I think there are certain cultures that... Um, I'm actually reading a book right now... Um, humiliation in international conflict. And I think that this, this piece about um, shame is really, really difficult. Um, when, when, when there's war, uh, people are shamed and that escalates into more aggressive defensive behavior and more humiliation. I think that the area of, for, for instance, an affect, because I wouldn't say it's an emotion, it's an affect, like shame is really important for us to study. And, um, yeah, um, and people get pulled into power dynamics 
I think that we get engaged in power where we don't have true strength. So I say that meaning that, for instance, on the area of defense, um, let's go back to our couple, the man and woman. You see, the woman doesn't have the sort of, I'm using male and female, it's just so I don't, just for keep it simple. Let's say the party, the woman doesn't have the strength to say, I'm really hurt by what you've said to me. And it's a position of vulnerability, which requires strength, a great deal of strength to be able to say something like that. It will take a power position, which is to say, I'm going to scare you and I'm going to yell and scream and threaten. Mm -hmm. But um, that only results in, like I said before, defensive maneuvers from the other person. So, So we go, I think countries go into a power dynamic with one another, which is, which we see, you know, we see this all the time. Mm. Um. You think we can cure the planet? I don't know about that. (laughs) No, about that. Yes, we can. There you go. What do you think? On Trinity of Life, I'm sure we're on, healing the planet. On Trinity of Life, yeah, we, we believe. We believe that we can. <laughs> you know, the power of thought, the power of uh, the, the, the numbers, you know, having positive thought. <laughs> Working through all these uh, fears because, all, you know, it, it just seems like every society out there, no matter which country... Um, I mean, it's, it, the world is such a fear. Every society is fear-based. Yeah. It's fear-based and, and comes shame, comes ego, comes all those things that you've mentioned. I mean, and, and clearly there has been seemingly so, uh, a, quite a paradigm shift that's been happening, you know, with the meditation that's starting to happen now, people getting more and more into sort of the, the, Connecting with themselves, connecting with their unconscious through the meditations. Um, yes, you know. So, so really, and and the communication, uh, it, it is starting to shift. It's what um, you're saying. You know, and yeah. we always say one drop is a thousand waves. So, you know, hopefully, <laughs> I know that uh, I have a family member who dealt with major anxiety, major postpartum depression. A uh, very strong woman, uh, you know, until suddenly, right after having the child, plummeted, just plummeted. And she, uh, away from the meds and everything, she finally found meditation. And she said, wow, <laughs> finally, she's reaching. She's really reaching, you know, building that core within herself to get stronger and stronger and realizing that that is so helpful just to yeah. take those 10 to 15 minutes in the morning and then in the afternoon again, before picking up the children, you know, that, that she just grounds herself first in the silence. Yes, yes. And certainly, you know, um, you're conscious. And I think that's something that we really tap into when we do meditation. You know, mm-hmm. a sense of ourself as um, part of a whole, mm-hmm. part of a bigger universe. And that's, that's also very grounding for people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's very interesting because there's so many people who fear meditation. Yeah. Isn't it? It's like, is yeah. like being still. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was one. 
<laughs> for you. Yeah. And a lot of people who judge themselves for it, they say, well, you know, I can't do it. And I'm say, I would say to them, well, nobody finds it easy. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And there's so much layers of judgment that go into it, right? Yes. But you see, the meditation is, and we would say, a way of being with the self, you know, in the quiet of the self, which can be very frightening, right? Mm -hmm. So the therapy provides another opportunity to do that, but it is very, you know, to to be with the self without the noise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's so nice to have someone like you in the room that it's guided then, and it's a feeling of safety. Yeah. For, your, for your clients, you like. Well, we. I often think of ther- therapy. People come into therapy, and you know, talking about meditation, they can't come into therapy by and large because they're having challenges with the external world. Mm. And through the process of therapy, um, not unlike meditation, they um, they eventually need to come to where they interface with themselves, different layers of themselves. And I think that in really, really good therapies, I think there's, there's something that, um, that if you go to the, to, to, that there should be a level of some transcendence there. There, there are a moment difficult to put into the, to words, mm-hmm. but some connectedness, you know, some connectedness with the world, the larger world, with, um, you know, with spirit, with all those things that we're all a little bit nervous about talking about, perhaps. But, and I think that that's what we hope in meditation to be able to do. I think they, they, they work together quite well. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's, that's what therapy um, allows us, a sort of um, ever-deepening relationship with our world that hopefully will transcend us. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Very good psychotherapist said, a good therapy allows us to forget about us, <laughs> to live our lives without, you know, worrying about ourselves. You know? Boy, I like that. <laughs> That's the jackpot. Let's just yeah. forget about me. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to, you know, just be in the world with more ease. Yeah. Monk. Uh, Christina brought something up, said, boy, it'd be great to have you in the room, uh, you know, to guide, uh, but couples are living together everywhere all over the planet and you can't be in all the rooms. Is there something that couples can do for themselves at a time when things might start getting into an argument, getting into a potential area that shame may happen or anger or fear or all of the defenses that you spoke about? Is there something that couples can do that, they recognize we're about to step on a landmine here and let's do this so that we can now, instead of going off into our internal methods of how we do things, is there something we can stop that and say, let's stop for a moment and move into another space and then work something out? I don't know if that was a long question that had no possible answer for it or we're right on it's called bounce on a ball that's right (laughs) funny i was going to say that i think what you said glenn is absolutely right i think to slow things down because there there's a way in which um you know couples that have been together they just develop a dynamic you know and it has its own life you know it's like you take a stone and you work its way into a rock and then it forms a groove. And, you know, when that drop of water goes in there, it spirals down this groove and 
you know, you started off asking uh, who's going to pick up the kids today from school. And then you're off on this, you're <laughs> off on this argument. Right. And, 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 and so I think slowing things down in that moment, carrying the consciousness that it, it historically always cut off in this direction. And can we make it go straight? You know, can we change the pattern of this? Can we respond rather than react, right? Is there a technique or a method or a word or a, a phrase, something that you can suggest to us that in that moment, one or the other couple could say, and then move into a place of, okay, we're con- we slow down for a moment to recognize. Because sometimes in the heat of that moment, people don't necessarily want to slow down. And the heat of the moment is really important because at that point, um, I would say mid-brain activation is taken hold, right? Mm-hmm. The, the brain that senses danger. The limbic. Mm-hmm. Yep, the limbic brain senses danger. And of course, um, as you know, Glenn, that the probably know the cortex shuts down, right? It's not thinking anymore. It's not thinking, this is my, my wife, this is my child. All it's feeling is attack, danger, you know, chemicals are flooding. And I think, you know, the age, age rule of, you know, count to 30, count to 10. Some people might be going for an hour, right? <laughs> To, to really, to, to so because it, you have to sort of recognize that the brain has gone into this mode. You know, how many times have we had an argument with somebody, walked away from it, and then thought, oh, I want to go back and make it better. I got to make up. I got to make up. And you go back and you make it worse. <laughs> like, how did that happen? How did that? Well, it's because, of course, the, the midbrain's still activated. It's still in what I call fight mode. So mm-hmm. you can do everything, you can, all the words can come out, and like, I'm sorry, and you want to get better, but it gets worse. So I think there has to be an understanding that for different people, when you're in that activated mode, somebody might need, need 30 seconds, somebody might need an app to calm themselves down and bring themselves out of the mode, right? And, and to recognize that they're in that state. So... And, and hopefully that with time and practice, you know, it doesn't have to be that you go to another room for three hours, right? <laughs> that you can, you can sort of de-escalate and bring these moments down so that they're shorter, you know, le- less likely to ruin your weekend. Right. I always you know. say do something really active, like run around the block, get on a treadmill where you just get exhausted. <laughs> you just get exhausted. Or, or, engage, <laughs> or engage with somebody else. Engage with somebody else to pull yourself out of that out of that mode. You as know? long as that other person doesn't feed your fire, <laughs> which I have seen that happen amongst For sure. the female gender, especially the male For gender sure. just pops the cork and go have a drink, have a beer. The female yeah. gender tends to go, and then what did he say? And yeah. then what did they do? Yeah. You gotta go. Oh, stop! Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then when the and then when the male gender says, "Calm down." Oh my god. <laughs> okay and the other thing is also try to really stay with how you're really feeling in the moment right so you might feel very 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 angry at your man but like i said in in effect you might be so hurt you might be so hurt so go with that feeling of i'm so hurt right and Mm -hmm. so so try to um try to speak to each other from where you're most vulnerable and where your true feelings are rather than go into the defenses. Because once the defenses come in, you're cooked, you know, you're done. So this may be a 
That was good. Thank you for that. Uh, and this may be related or not totally related, but if we can we recognize to be proactive in our own mental orders and disorders, can we, if we see something that has the potential, we're involved in something that has the potential to go internal and cause lots of strife later on, is there something we can do to say, wait, that I don't want that to go too deep, that I lose it and it's going to affect me? Are there ways of recognizing things like that? And are there, if we can recognize them, are there ways of either letting them just flow through us or not come into us? I don't know if I'm... So what do you mean? What, what sort of thing are you talking about that you wouldn't want to become in, internalized within yourself or go deep within yourself? Self let's say, uh, I think if for myself, for example, let's say I got into an accident mm. and I don't want that to go into me so that I have fear. This happened to me once when I was driving, I got into an accident and it took me a long time to recover. And when I had to get back in the car again to drive yeah. again, there was a lot of fear for yes, me. Yes, naturally. So, naturally. So what I'm saying is the accident is very clear that I just had that. That's something that's not subtle. I'm trying to give something that's right. obvious. So right. is there, I, how do I recognize something that may be a little more subtle than that or not so subtle and make it so that it doesn't go into me where it's going to affect me either recent or years later where I need to go see you and get that figured out. Yeah, I think um, what you're saying here is really, really important because um, practitioners will say that, um, especially with children, um, that it's not the trauma, whatever the trauma may be, is damaging but that what is done with the trauma is critical in how it's resolved, right? Mm -hmm. So um, an, exa an example, for instance, with children, if something happens to a child, if they are, you know, God forbid, sexually abused by somebody or whether they're, that the process of being able to, for instance, talk about it a lot, to, to, that, that the parents are there for the child, that's really important, um, if a parent does something that they are uh, they feel guilty about, perhaps they shouldn't have done, I think to be able to acknowledge to the child um, to what the, the the child is capable of hearing the parent's own part in this, you know their role in this, and I'm sorry that that might have hurt you, you know that that sort of thing. I think it's uh, it's how the repair emotionally. Is handled. So in, in your case, Glenn, I would say that a great deal of talking about it might need to have happened, right? A lot of talking about how it impacted you, what it felt like, what fear you went through. Um, perhaps, and I would go back to this, to, to talk about dreams that you may have that are about this, right? Hmm. I'm feeling better already. <laughs> let's, let's take uh, staying on that a little bit longer let's say you have a client or a patient that has a great deal of anxiety and usually they uh, I'm guessing they come into you and this was an episode and this caused me all of these problems part of that would be as they go out into the world and you know that you've seen them many times for their anxious states 
Is there something that you can say to them that as they're going through the day, if they recognize something that's about to cause major anxiety that's going to require another appointment, not that I don't want you to have them seeing you, but is, are there little things that they would be able to do as they're walking through the day in the, uh, you know, in the aisle at the checkout counter or driving in the car? Something happens that causes an anxiety they recognize that they can take it right then and not allow it to magnify and become that iceberg. Um, I think in this area, you're, you're dealing with um, more about management, right? How do you manage, say, the symptom of anxiety? And I would, you know, I, I, I don't know how to answer that generic term except that of course if you can you know like it's very you know if we think about anxiety or anything like that as as perhaps a groove that we we have um like we'd have to know what sort of thoughts are going through this person as they're having this anxiety well how did it that that's where I would tend to work more with as a practitioner I would say how did this anxiety start what were the triggers in this what were your thoughts in this um and explore that. But I, I think that, do you understand what I'm, I'm saying? Yes, I would I tend to, I would tend to, I would tend to be more exploratory so that those, tr- so that the, the client will know, oh, this is the trigger, you know, elicit this response right. in me. Maybe, maybe I, I felt really aggressive and then I got anxious because I was afraid of my own aggression, you know, th- that sort of thing. Um, I'm hoping I answered your question. I think so, but maybe this is part of my therapy that I need to, uh, I'm looking for, uh, and I like the way you said management, but I'm not sure that I'm looking for the management. Maybe I am, and I don't even know it. I'm looking for something uh, to avoid something is Mm -hmm. more of, so I can say that this is not going to allow me to get anxious and upset before it actually gets to that point where now I'm out of control and I'm incapable of anything else, to be able to recognize situations and have some kind of a technique that would allow me to prevent this from upsetting me as much as it possibly could. So where you know the trigger or where you don't know the trigger? Where you may know the trigger. Right. Um, I don't, I don't know that, that, um, I would work in that particular direction. I would tend to work in a, in a direction where the person understands where the anxiety is coming from Mm -hmm. and is able to not feel that anxiety, you know, is, is able, um, not to feel that particular anxiety. Um, I would imagine, but I do know that with some people, I have said to them, I have, well, this is where relaxation comes in very helpful, right? To, um, to do the uh, relaxation and to say that when something like this comes up, imagine yourself in your most, um, most peaceful place in your home, whatever it may be, doing the most peaceful, you can, most comforting thing that you can do for yourself. And so in those moments where the anxiety or panic comes up, that if you can sort of put yourself back in that state, 
then that would that has been very helpful for people to sort of put yourself into that. It's almost meditative, a, 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 a place where you felt safe, that you felt fine, that you felt that you were protected, right? Excellent. Do you use um, other integrative therapies? Do you send people to acupuncturists? or yes. do you uh, Do you believe that foods have an emotional component? We work with Tracy Harrison a lot, and we're going to have a talk. We may even want to have you on a panel where we're talking about emotional aspects of eating and how foods yes, affect that's us. That's very interesting. Yes. Chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Chocolate. Probably in the world who doesn't have a sweet tooth, I don't get this chocolate thing. <laughs> but, but absolutely, I, I work, um, I believe very, very much in the mind-body. And one of the things, um, I, I have um, a doctor here in Toronto that I, re- I, I work with who, who is, you know, sort of a vitality health optimization MD. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, when you were talking about antidepressants and anxiety meds and such, and I, I, she works wonderfully because rather than, say, working with an antidepressant for somebody, you know, we might, we might start to recognize that, oh, you know, they, they have, low, they have a, a low-functioning thyroid, and this might be the real issue, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I do certainly refer to naturopaths. I refer to massage therapists, osteopaths, and, and like I say, any doctor who, who emphasizes health optimization. Mm. It's, it's, it's to go to the root of the problem has always been much more my goal. Excellent. We're speaking with Meng Ling Tsui, and she has been teaching us a little bit about the mind, and we're going to be learning a lot more about the mind as we go on. And at this time, Meng, we always ask our guest for a health tip. And although you've probably given us a number of health tips already, I wonder if you have something for us. I think I've probably alluded to it several times during the course of this hour. I think I would say to people, always be with your truth. Be with your truth. Um, And no matter whether it may be a bit unsavory for you, (laughs) maybe that, um, you know, maybe that you're really angry at somebody you love or, or, or whatever it may be, that it's always better to be in the truth. Because if you're not in the truth, get into defenses. And when you're in the truth, you come closer to being your, um, your more authentic self, who you really are. And, um, and that's, that's a reward in and of itself. I think I'll just take a deep breath on that. Great health tip. And I appreciate that. I want to um, add, for- the sooner the better. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, it it gets of- too hard as you get older. The sooner the better. Get it over with. <laughs> but there's so many truths that, that we might want to avoid. And it, it, and yeah. it comes back to what I was saying about hu- being human. Being human involves um, really spectacular acts, really noble acts, and some thoughts that are not so noble. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> and, and it's better to be in the truth of that and say, yeah. This is this is what I feel right now. What am I going to do about it? And um, and I think we avoid that. We we tend to avoid certain truths. We try to um, use substitutes to um, to um, to not be with ourselves in our truths and whether whatever those substitutes may be. You know, drinking, eating too excess, shopping, working too much, all sorts of ways that we we find to. Um, 
to not be with ourselves and, and to try to fill ourselves in ways from the outside rather than to fill ourselves from the inside. Mm-hmm. Oh, very nice. Beautiful. <clears throat> Mung, is there anything that uh, in preparing for this uh, wonderful episode today that we didn't get to that you really want to mention? Um, no, not really. Just that, that, that last point of, um, of living important and that, um, I think that um, I think societally we um, we don't share enough with one another. I think we we spend a lot of time, um, you know, um, the psychoanalyst um, Christopher Bolas. He termed uh, he coined a, a phrase called normotic illness. I think it's really a, quite an interesting concept. And what he says about it is, um, I'm paraphrasing, and but that 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 in essence we have become self alienated, or we are self alienated. So we don't really have a gauge of what it means to be healthy, to be emotionally healthy, mm. to be psychologically healthy for us. Mm. So what we do is instead of saying, um, you know, how do I want to? Rather than asking those questions, we look at our neighbors and the guy down the street and what other mm. people are doing, and we go, okay, well, they're doing this, and everybody, like 92% of people drive this, and 90, and the most people drive, you know, gray cars, and they, when I ask them how they are, they say they're fine, and, you know, and so, so we, we, we try to behave, I love this, they, we try to behave like we're normal. And um, I think that has devastating consequences because I don't think we're honest with each other. We don't, um, and I'm not saying you go up to your butcher and you tell them, you know, your life story. I'm just <laughs> saying that that there's a place and time for us to share who we are. And some of the sharing might be in darker places, um, might be, um, you know, even something like having children. Well, you know, we, we would love them so much, but then, you know, are, are there dark parts of having a child that we all need to discuss to actually talk about so that it's out in the open? You know, so it's sort of like, yeah, you know, I think I think that, you know, when my daughter was born, you know, I went to mother's groups and I was like, yeah, wasn't I like, aren't you like feeling like this? And then people said, yeah, yeah, I feel that way. You know, it's, it's not all, you know, pink and blue and clouds. Hmm. So I, I think that, um, I think I think really to be as real as we possibly can feel with one another and to be really honest and open about what it means to be human, about the darkness and the light and, um, and create a world where we can support each other and perhaps not feel alone in, in a lot of private suffering that I see. I see mm. a lot of private suffering behind closed doors. Mm. I think those are great words to end on today. I'm grateful to our very special guest, Meng Ling Sui, a psychotherapist. And she has shared her wisdom, expertise, and journey with us. I want to thank my teachers and healers for helping me through my journey. Thanking Christina and Yoga Hub and all of you that are watching Magical Medical Tour and uh, replying to us and sending in your questions and being loyal viewers. 
So until next week, when we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, I want to say thank you, Mung. Thank you, Christina. And to all, I wish you optimal health. Thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman. And of course, to our wonderful guest, Mung Ling. That was exceptional. Thank you so much for gifting us your time and your expertise. It's fantastic. Such a pleasure. And of course, we'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 Eastern, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. May I remind you that you can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman by following him on Twitter, at Glenn Woolman, and of course through his own site, at glennwoolman.com, where I encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath that will definitely help you during any times of anxiety. <laughs> and also, uh, you can connect with uh, Mung Ling Choi at psychotherapistontario.com psychotherapistontario.com. Again, we're always grateful for your feedback and any support and suggestions that you might have. Give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. YHTV's Trinity of Life. Come join me, Christina Suzama, as I journey to find the many modalities that support individuals, from children to adults to elders, with topics ranging from health and wellness, meditation, and inspirational stories. I invite you to visit yogahub.tv every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern.